Welcome to Capstan Live. We're the podcast that makes sure you're in the know about the taxes you might owe. If you're a tax professional, a business owner, or a real estate investor, you're in the right place for real talk about tax savings. Hello, welcome to another episode of Castan Live. I'm Helena Carmel, and today's episode is our third annual year-end top 10. It's the best episode of the year. We're going to hit all the highs and maybe some of the lows of the last 12 months. You'll be totally up to date and ready for tax season. Now, I can't jump into the top 10 without introducing my top four. I have some very, very special guests today. People you know, people you love. First of all, of course, Terry Johnson. Welcome, Terry. Hi, Helena. Great to be here today. Hello, Bruce. Good morning, Bruce Johnson. Helena, it is awesome to be here. How is sunny Florida treating you? Fantastic. Gotta love it. Can't complain. Even with the gators that just are there as your neighbors. Jacob, Jacob Wood of Houston, Texas. How are you, Jacob? Hey, good morning. Glad to be here and happy to be doing this. And my possible all-time favorite, Mr. Z Carmel. How are you? Doing, oh, wait. Doing this great. is an audio medium. He right. just gave a thumbs up, listeners. The podcasting is an audio medium. Right? Yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Okay. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Well, I am so lucky because these capstan luminaries have made the time to join us with the, for our year-end top 10. So let's get into it. Drum roll, please. We'll insert that in post, maybe. Um, so number 10, do-do-do-do-do, number 10 is just 1031 exchanges, 754 step-ups. They're still around, and they still have inherent cost-side potential that is unfortunately often overlooked. Bruce, can you talk to us a little bit about these situations and what makes them such great cost-site opportunities? Well, I, I think that it all comes down to, as we probably talk a lot about, is people's need or appetite for deductions, uh, ways to, to shelter income, uh, recognized and legal ways to recognize income. <laughs> so when we look at uh, some events that occur uh, during people's years, that they might have, these might be triggers or symptoms, I say, or, or indications of things that could be used using some of the strategies that we do here. And I know we've talked about this before, but I'll start with the 1031 exchanges. Uh, been around since 1928, I believe, um, and have been expanded to be used in a lot of different ways, but most importantly for commercial real estate. So as a great tax strategy itself. Uh, It's been in place for a long time, as I just mentioned, but it wasn't until really the Tax Cuts for Jobs Act uh, being passed in December of 17 that we really saw cost segregation or accelerated depreciation and 1031 exchanges being used together. And really the genesis of that was the the the, uh, expansion of bonus, uh, bonus treatment to acquired assets. So when we look at 1031s, when they're in place, usually those are the primary tool that's being used. Now we see a lot of people leveraging or at least looking at accelerated depreciation on the back end once they've closed on the replacement property to get Hmm. the traditional benefits of cost segregation. So both really are providing their well-known benefits together 
but it really, as I said before, Helena, it comes down to the taxpayer or taxpayers in question really having a need for and a usefulness for the, the tool, the tools together, I should say. And then with 754 step ups, certainly uh, we, we continue to see a lot of activity in this this area. And there's could be a number of reasons for that set that, that step up. But when we look at this again, similar to the 1031 point, it really comes down to uh, the existing ownership group or owner or ownership group of the underlying assets, whether or not they can use accelerated depreciation, because if they can, yeah. that 754 step up, as the name implies, triggers at a point in time, triggers a new basis to be potentially right. a focus for looking at some of these tools. So a uh, little bit of intricacies with related to that, particular to the Tax Cuts for Jobs Act as well, depending upon how the 754 is filed, uh, there may be bonus application or there may not. But uh, for the sake of time here, I won't get into the details there. Uh, certainly, they those the people who are listening could certainly ask us if they have any more questions on this or certainly talk to their tax professional. But nonetheless, 754s, we found over the years, we kind of stumbled across this many, many years ago. Uh, it's a very, very potentially valuable tool for mm -hmm. the new ownership structure to take advantage of that new step-up basis and accelerate depreciation as a, as a tax strategy. Thanks, Bruce. And I didn't know that, that 1031 exchanges have been around since the 20s. Like, yeah, they actually started out with the, the, the intent and purpose, initial purpose of it was for the purchase, the sale and purchase of land, of uh, farmland. That's how it got, it came oh. into being. And now it's been expanded to all commercial real estate. I don't know why I thought you were going to say something like about speakeasies. <laughs> or, or something. Because <laughs> I was going to be like, wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Um, okay, number nine. Number nine is number nine is section 179. Section 179, I want to talk to you about it, Steve, because mm -hmm. sure. every year the federal expensive limits go up and up. And on contrast to bonus, seven, section 179 continues to permit the immediate expense of 100% of the assets. Talk to me about Section 179. Uh, yeah, so you're correct that the limits for one, Section 179 expensing have gone up again. It's up about 80K to, uh, I think the limit now is 1.16 million. Um, and that is an increase for 2023. And just as a reminder, it allows businesses that are out, uh, operating in active trades to uh, expense uh, certain types of equipment and improvement uh, entirely, get them off the books. Um, and uh, certainly a valuable tax strategy. Uh, it's true that over the last several years, this has become a little less relevant in terms of its potential for deduction because of the 100% bonus that has existed. Um, but now that bonus is starting to step down, and now you know this year we were at 80%, and it's going to keep uh, stepping down, then uh, this might become something that people want to look into more. Would you say that as bonus steps down, Section 179 expensing might step up? I would, I would totally say that, as a matter of fact. Yes, <laughs> I think that, uh, that would be a true statement. If, uh, if you qualify for it, it might be a good strategy. Um, I should point out <laughs> that the difference between expensing via 179 and bonus depreciation is that when you expense an asset, it's coming off your books completely. I know that might have ramifications for uh, the tax for the state tax filing. Mm. Um, 
you know, uh, that are that are that are beyond uh, what bonus can do for you. So, um, you know, all of these questions when it comes to the ins and outs, obviously, in, in addition to consulting with Capstan, uh, owners of commercial real estate should consult with their CPAs and financial advisors as well. Yes, especially because, as you mentioned, it can only be taken on a trader business, so it won't necessarily apply to every real estate situation. Correct. That's correct. Right. Right. That, to, to, right. It's good to understand when it's applicable and when it's not, obviously. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, for number eight, we're going to pivot to one of the newest stars in the Capstan Galaxy. Jacob, working with you is so interesting because you are an attorney, and sometimes I feel like we're in a case of law and order, not like an exciting one, but a case of law and order nonetheless. And I've learned a lot about case law working with you. So I wanted to ask you to come in and talk to us about a very significant case in the world of R&D tax credits that has a lot of implications for, for taxpayers. And that case is Little Sandy, as I like to call it, Little Sandy. Jacob, can you tell our listeners what they need to know about Little Sandy and why it's so relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So Little Sandy or Little Sandy Cole is actually um, one of several cases that's come out in the last few years on the R&D credit. And, and they've all kind of said the same thing, which is that, you know, while there's no specific documentation required for the credit, you do have to have good documentation to prove out all elements of the four-part test. Um, and what that really gets into is you know, not only proving out that, yes, you're creating something, but what are the specific uncertainties that you are trying to solve? And this has been part of a broader movement in the within the IRS and for the credit um, that essentially wants you to logically lay out any claim for the credit. So you need to be able to say kind of from the ground up, these were the ideas that, you know, you were thinking of, these were the hypotheses you were testing, and then this is what you did to test that. Now, Little Sandy... Cole um, dealt with some barges that um, a taxpayer was designing and building. They were first in class and they um, basically claimed all of these barges at a hundred percent qualified. So they said these were first in class. They were new. They were pilot models. They relied heavily on the section 174 definition of pilot models. Um, and so therefore 100% of these costs would claim And the court really pushed back and said, you know, number one, we don't think these meet the definition of a pilot model. Um, they're not being created to test or resolve uncertainty, which is the definition of a pilot model, um, or at least in whole they are not. Uh, but secondly, the the, um, the counsel for the taxpayer was really heavily relying on an all-or-nothing approach. And wow. so they took a lot of high-level documentation and said these ships were new. Just because they were new doesn't mean that they – automatically qualify. And so the the court had some interesting kind of dicta and actually kind of faced the fourth wall a couple of times and talked to people in the industry about this case. So that was kind of interesting, which you don't normally see courts do. And so the take home message from this is that you can't be, I guess it's twofold really. First of all, that you shouldn't be too like grand in your scope, right? Like if the little mm -hmm. Sandy people had shrunk back and only tried to to get um, you know, part of the barge qualified, they might have been successful, right? That that you can kind of shrink down to the business components that you can prove. 
Right. Yeah, and court, you know, courts love to have options. Like if you look at a lot of different areas of law, the courts don't want to write their own law. Sometimes they will. They'll come up with a new rule that they, you know, frankly kind of make up. But um, but most of the time they want the, you know, petitioners or the respondents to basically be giving them enough information that they can kind of pick and choose what's there. And so, you know, if you rely on an all or nothing approach, then you're going to you're going to basically get all or nothing. And if a court doesn't want to give you all, then they're going to give you nothing. So you, what you, you want to do is want to kind of layer in right. you either home run or you, Oh God, why did I use a sports metaphor? That's exactly I, I it. Finish it though. Either you home run or you, or you strike out. Strike out. Yes. Or you strike yes. out. Yes. Thank you. I don't know why. <laughs> yes. Okay. And, and I, the other point I wanted to bring up is that documentation is so crucial, right? Like they weren't able to document and demonstrate that they tied their, their QREs, their costs to a specific process of experimentation. That's correct. Right? And okay. and again, the the balance you have to to toe there is that there's no there's still no specific rule that says you have to have everything tied up on a GL and you know exactly where all the expenses went. On the other hand, you do need to reasonably be able to say what expenses and what activities related to what projects uh, and what were the uncertainties there? And, and you know, what I think where the IRS envisions this is having some kind of a table or a series of tables that kind of outline what was spent on what. Um, and I think that's just going to be important going forward. But, you know, they also, I mentioned, they kind of broke the fourth wall a couple of times and kind of looked at the audience reading the cases. And one really interesting quote, uh, and I quote, the lesson for taxpayers seeking to avail themselves of the research tax credit is to adequately document that substantially all such activities were research activities that constitute elements of a process of experimentation. That's one of the parts of the four-part test. Um, generalized descriptions of uncertainty, assertions of novelty, and arbitrary estimates of time performing experimentation are not enough, end quote. That sums it up. That sums it up. It really does. And we know for a fact that the IRS is looking very closely at this, and they're not letting not letting things fly. So I know we spent a lot of time on that one, but I think it's super important. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot back to Bruce again. Um, and we're going to talk about actually the first of three Inflation Reduction Act items on this top 10. 33% of the list is IRA related, which really testifies to how crucial the IRA has been this year. First thing, Bruce, can you talk to us about prevailing wages? and the prevailing wage requirement and how everybody was super excited about the new possible potential maximums. And all of a sudden prevailing wages came and kind of, uh, I don't want to say party pooped, but um, I just said it. Bruce, talk to us about prevailing wages. Well, certainly uh, this was a, a wrinkle that no one really had anticipated. Uh, one of the changes that you kind of alluded to in the IRA have been requested, talked about for a very long time. Uh, but when this actually was put together and then obviously passed and published, uh, this was one of the surprises that faced many people in the uh, energy retrofit or energy incentive industry. Uh, because again, th what we're really relating this to is, is 179D and to a degree 45L as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, both programs have been in place since 2006, pretty well known. And then once again, uh, the IRA came into being and changed a number of things. And this being probably one of the largest. Uh, certainly people look at 
the financial incentive increases, but this, particularly when it comes to 179 cap D, has become a little bit of a, a potential rub for people because when we look at this, we're really talking bit. about uh, the need for um, labor, uh, union labor to be used for a project. Uh, and as we kind of talk about this, we also need to understand that there's still a great deal of questions that people have. Uh, we need some guidelines, a, a fair amount more of guidance. I'll give you just mm -hmm. one to me. One of the biggest is, all right, if I have to use prevailing wage rates, do I have to use prevailing wage rates on every type, yes. every scope item in a project? So, for example, um, uh, fire safety is not part of the main in a main focus for these initiatives. Do you have to pay prevailing wage rates for that? So we don't know oh. just yet. Yes. And you know, that, that's just one example of, of the questions that we have. But when we look at for the private taxpayer, I would say for the most part, uh, and a lot of the conversations that I have had, uh, when this comes up, there's a pause, a bit of quiet, and then the discussion turns to, well, we've thought about that, but that's just too expensive. And, and I, I can't say this is scientific, but union wages are probably going to increase 30 to 40% the labor costs on a project. So uh, for a lot of people, that's probably a no-go. However, so, if we, go ahead, you had a question? Oh, no, I was just going to say, so so at the end of the day, is it going to be worth it? Will the potential increased benefit from 179D outweigh the potential increase in labor costs? And I guess that's well, going to be a situation specific. I mean, in, in one unique case, I had a conversation with uh, a developer last fall, and the answer is perhaps. I, I haven't heard what their final decision was. They're still in the design phase, but in that particular case, they were make they were they were building a very large mixed use facility that included both uh, uh, rental uh, multifamily rental units as well as a mix of office and retail as well as a park, large parking garage. So in that case, because they have a large amount of square footage and they're including potentially 45L for the, the uh, residential rental units, that case, I did hear that they were seriously thinking about pivoting to use union wage or prevailing wage rates, which I might add that what happens if, and here's another area that we're just conjecture or uh, guess on our part, but not all places have the ability to use union wage, wage rates. Oh. They don't exist, perhaps. So um, what we think we've heard talk about is that, okay, if you pay union wage rates, increase the labor rates for whoever you're using, that that might cover this. But that's something that a little detail that we would need the IRS to give a, a full blessing upon to make sure that that's actual, actually uh, something that will meet the requirement. But let's kind of pivot to the design profession and the ability to use 179D. So in a lot of those cases, particularly design professionals, the architectural profession, when they're doing work for government agencies, um, that is a requirement. So at least in a lot of the conversations that I've been having since the IRA's passing, this is, okay, not, a, not as big a deal for those types of organizations that are planning to use 179D. And again, that is for design professionals in particular mm -hmm. working with the government agencies. As we know, the IRA increased not just increased the usability of 179D for the design professions, not just for government agencies as they have been from 06 through 2022, 
but now we have them for nonprofits, for religious organizations, uh, for uh, Native American <laughs> tribe, tribal facilities. Uh, so that's ex been expanded starting in 2023. But when we look at this prevailing wage rate, it's, uh, I would say from most of the conversations that I've had with for-profit taxpayers, um, this has probably been a no-go for them. They, if they're going to use 170ID, they're going to have to use the lower tier benefits, which mm -hmm. really puts a damper to a degree on people's interest and, quite frankly, the usability of, of the tool. Right. I mean, the lower tier benefit is less than it was pre-IRA, right? Before the IRA, people could get barefoot, right? And now, without prevailing wage, you get a buck, a buck per square foot. Like, that's a real downer. Oh come on, Helena. We have a we have a small inflation adjustment there, so it's like what a buck oh, fine. But but the fine. point you're making is yeah, roughly it's it's I mean to a good, large degree it's half of what it was at maximum benefit last year. So nonetheless, those are the facts yeah. that we have, and it is what it is. Um, it it just changes the dynamic a bit when people talk about this for sure. Oh, for sure. And and as you said, it's still kind of a developing story, as it were. We so, very much need guidance yeah. from the IRS, and I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about that regarding the IRA and some other discussions here shortly. Oh, yes. Um, and actually, Bruce, you went ahead and, and touched on our next topic, which was IRA and the design professional and how how now um, nonprofit entities have the scope's been expanded to include those kind of properties, which is awesome. Yeah, Bruce just gave us a twofer. Bruce Excellent. gave us a twofer. Try to be, be efficient. Um, so now let's go to Steve. And now let's talk about number five, which is bonus depreciation rates yes. continue to fall. And the question is, how low will they go? Actually, oh. probably no mystery. We know the answer to that. It's not a game of limbo, Eve. <laughs> I know. I, I know. wish it was. That would be fun. Um, being lower is not better. Yeah. Um, so in 2023, for the first time in several years, bonus dropped from 100 percent down to 80. Uh, in 2024, it will drop down to 60, um, as the law still stands, and uh, will continue to drop in subsequent years. So. Um, you know, I think we'll, what we'll see from that is that people who are looking to perhaps acquire properties or maybe there are properties that are under construction and wrapping up, uh, they will be looking to close deals or have certificates of occupancy issued by the end of the year to be able to capitalize on the 80% bonus rate as opposed to having something slip into 2024 when the bonus rate will be 60%. So the key is to be being mindful of the calendar. Or absolutely, already. absolutely. And it, just like it was last year right. when the bonus rates were going from 100 to 80. Uh, and so that's just something that people need to be aware of. Uh, I think people are. People involved in real estate are certainly aware of it. Uh, I think bonus depreciation, uh, at least I've been told by our clients, is part of the decision-making process when they acquire properties. Mm -hmm. They factor that into their planning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so knowing that the rates are going to decrease will certainly have an effect on people's behavior. But just to be clear, though, cost segregation studies will still bring benefits. Of course. Even when the bonus no, Of course. There's still going to be accelerated yeah. depreciation. And even with a lower rate, the, the bonus is still, um, you know, a, a shot in the arm. Oh, right. Okay. I just wanted so, to be explicit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, where this might come into play a little bit is if you've got uh, certain types of properties with very low basis. Um, you know, let's say, a, you know, a basis of a couple hundred thousand dollars for, for a very small property, whereas Duke or Cross Egg would have been more lucrative when the bonus rate was 100%. Mm -hmm. 
at 60%, it might not be uh, as lucrative. Um, it's still so, lucrative, like still. But still, there's, there's absolutely still a benefit, and you know, certainly for for our, our standard type of commercial real estate property that we look at all the time, um, I, I, I don't see I don't see the the demand for cross seg decreasing because of this. Oh no, certainly not. Um, okay, thank you, Steve. Sure thing. Okay, Terry has been so quiet, and she's like one of my favorite people to talk to. So now I finally get to pivot to Terry, and Terry's going to talk to us about number four, which is actually hopefully she's got some better jokes too, Elena, than oh, we've had. Yeah, well, so far things have been weak. I agree, Terry. For sure <laughs> but um, this is a new topic. Actually, we've never talked about affordable housing um, before in our top ten, but Costag is really growing in popularity in this market, and Terry is quite the um guru i don't know guru might be a strong word she's making kind of a face she's a maven she's a maven that's thank you that's better that's better when it comes to affordable housing and the utility cost segregation terry can you please give us some some background talk to us about cost seg and affordable housing absolutely helena one of my favorite topics i really enjoy the affordable housing market and especially the low-income housing tax credit deals that we work mm -hmm. on extensively but just kind of putting things in perspective, I mean, the, the in affordable housing just continues to be a critical concern for the U.S. housing market. And, you know, we, it was interesting. Bruce and I were out at the Councils of Real Estate Annual Conference in Vancouver, British mm -hmm. Columbia, back in late September, where they every year, drum roll please, they roll out <laughs> their top 10 real estate issues for the coming year and we've seen affordable housing on that list keep in mind that that's a global list of concern not just the u.s market so this ranked fairly high this year the affordable housing on the cre uh top 10 list for 2024 um so let's kind of drill down a little bit on this and here in the U.S. on these light it deals, what happens is that the large corporations and banks are basically acting as investors in the sector. So they're contributing capital to affordable housing deals. It probably wouldn't really happen without that. And they're utilizing those credits and losses against their overall income. So they're benefiting from this while kind of propping up this industry. So it's been very affected in getting deals. We see a lot of these in developers going for the light tick credits and then they are acquiring properties and then putting a lot of money into them to renovate. And sometimes they're building new construction as well. I mean, obviously we just gobble up these projects here in the US <laughs> and you, you can't really build them quick enough. And then as far nice. as the cost, as far as the cost seg goes, under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, what happened, as we all are very aware, is that it set this bonus depreciation for a 10-year period of time. Okay, so that's great. And if you're a if you're a, a, a LIHTC deal and you're a developer and you're doing pro formas on your project, think in terms of, wow, I can actually build this into my project and I'm going to be acquiring yeah. and redeveloping. And it might take three or four years to get those deals done, but they're knowing exactly what these bonus rates are going to be over a 10 year period. So that has really provided predictability um, mm -hmm. as far as the depreciation expenses and how they can use those, the bonus depreciation to their benefit. 
so it's heightened the interest in cost tags, I think, in this in the affordable housing market. And as the investors, they can all of a sudden they're they're more confident in right in incorporating that bonus appreciation rates into their projections and and also the yield calculations. Yeah, that totally makes sense. If you can like plan ahead and be confident about you know about rates, it's, it it opens up a whole mm-hmm. new new uh, world. Um, so when can cost that be performed on a light tech project? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people just think, oh, I can do a cost seg when I acquire something or build something right. new. And and they're really, in this industry, they're taking advantage of cost segs at every step of the way. So oh. they can be performed throughout the life cycle of a light tech project. So let's first start new construction. Makes total sense. And we mentioned already the acquisition and rehab. So you're having these mm-hmm. acquisitions that might be like a $3 million deal and they're putting $18 million into the rehab. So they're basically completely redoing this project. So right. let's talk a little bit about how that works because it, it has some complexities. So you often will we'll do a phase one cost seg on the acquisition and then we'll do a phase two on the rehab, but you mm-hmm. have to be careful not to double dip because oh. if you're, let's say you're doing an acquisition in January and you're placing that rehab in service at the end of the year, you can't be removing assets and then all of a sudden um, taking the bonus and then taking it again on the renovation. So our engineers literally have to go in and look at that project and say, okay, for the acquisition, what are these assets are being planned to to be removed? And then, Uh and they literally will not take that bonus and move those into these, uh, the um, accelerated class lives on the acquisition. So your acquisition acceleration will be a little bit lower and then you'll pick that up on the renovation. Pick it up on the rehab Yeah, it's, it's just a, a little bit of a careful consideration on the engineering yeah. side to make sure we understand timing and scope and that we're not double dipping because you're not allowed to do that. So we've no, been very sounds, careful. Yes, that sounds yeah, very complicated. As an engineer, see you, can you confirm? I confirm it's complicated. Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> um, <laughs> we definitely like to know that ahead and not after the fact. So yes. you don't, you don't want to go back and be redoing those projects. So, and then you know, there's some other areas, Helena, that you can do the cost segs, and and that would be done on a project purchase. Um, and sometimes we see these partnership interest purchases on light tech deals. And then also after an investor exits, you can do mm. a cost seg. Then so. On those latter three scenarios, we call those look back, right. look back cost segregation studies, and you would use the 481A adjustment to pick up the depreciation in the current year as if you'd done it from the beginning. So that's just something to be aware of. So when we're working on these cost on the on the light tech deals, it's really important. I just want to emphasize this that you want to be talking to your tax advisor. You know, there's a a group, a group of CPA firms in the country that do almost exclusively affordable housing, light tech deals, and they are so nuanced. It's just very important to make sure that the CPA is involved. And on most of those, we're coming in actually through the CPA and not Mm -hmm. direct with the clients because there's a lot of advising that's going on during this whole process. Wow. 
Wow. Um, no, it, it, it sounds quite um, um, complex and, but also like ripe with opportunity. So I guess, I guess those things go together. Complexity. Wait, Bruce, wasn't that a you saying, Bruce? Complexity breeds opportunity? Am I making that up? I, I feel like that was a it you is. quote. It is. Yep. Uh, it's been living in my brain, rent free, I guess. Um, and I know that affordable housing properties are usually energy efficient. So that way mm -hmm. residents can benefit from, from reasonable utility costs. So that means that theoretically, um, you could also benefit from 45L tax credit studies in, in this market. Right, Terry? Absolutely. And the 179D, as Bruce was talking about uh, on some of the deals, we've done those as well. But we're seeing, you know, the 45L tax credits more and they've been used heavily, I think, on these LIHTC deals. Um, what happens with a, a LIHTC deal is they're getting the credits and they have mm -hmm. to meet certain requirements in order to be awarded these credits. So building energy efficient projects kind of goes with that, you know, like if you're going to get these credits, we want you building energy efficient projects. Right. So they tend to be, oftentimes they're using prevailing wages. Oftentimes they mm. are very energy efficient. So what's nice about the, under the IRA is that you can get the tax credit up to $5,000 per unit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more under that section, but there's also the prevailing wage requirement and they've lifted the height restriction. So where it used Ooh. to be no more than three stories for 45 L tax credits, they've taken that away. So it's just something important, I think, for folks to know that there's a lot of opportunity here. And we'll talk about it in more detail in the next section. Great. Thank you, Terry. That was such a great overview of LIHTC and affordable housing. Um, and actually, we're going to go right back to you, Terry, because you're number three. Number three as well is a Terry topic, and it might be her favorite topic. I don't know. Are TPR still your favorite, Terry? Yeah, she's smiling. She's Absolutely. a fan. Absolutely. Yes. She's a fan. Yeah. So um, number three, um, our number three topic in our top 10 is that TPRs and bonus eligible QIP still remain so relevant and lucrative, especially in renovation scenarios. And the TPRs, you know, uh, they're not getting so much ink. Everyone's all excited about the IRA and newer legislation, but the TPRs are still very much in play and we love them. Terry, tell us why you love them. Well, you know, Helena, the tangible property regs have been around since 2014. And I'm back mm -hmm. in the day, we were all presenting on this like weekly and there was a lot of confusion over how they worked. <laughs> you know, Neither I mean, it, in, in a nutshell, the IRS gave us a roadmap with not being basically by example. They gave us a bunch of examples to say, this is how you determine when you're making an improvement on your property, do I expense or do I capitalize? And this is kind of the roadmap to follow. So we put together a flow chart that has been uh, probably one of our most favorite tools, wouldn't you say, Helena? Absolutely. Over the years, and it's still very relevant. And by the way, if anybody would like that, I'm, I'm sure Helena can tell you how to how to get that mm -hmm. TPR flow chart. But at the end, I need of the that day, on a T-shirt. By the way, that would be great. Right? Yeah, oh, you can hand that out. <laughs> the TPR flow chart. There we uh, go. I, I like if that. you think this is complicated, call Capstan. <laughs> God, Jacob, get on his marketing team. Oh, I love that. There you go. I know it's a burgeoning I career. I wear that when I 
percent because you know I never do a presentation without talking about the TPRs. So <laughs> yeah, you can go. just Elena, we got to get those those ordered right away. Wheels, 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 wheels. So anyway, so the, the TPRs work really well in tandem with other tax strategies, and you know, there's a couple areas that first of all, you know, you're looking at just expensing off the top, whether it mm-hmm. it be routine maintenance or de minimis, which happens without typically without capstan getting involved. Sometimes on a, on a renovation project, we'll take a look at that. But then you've got to walk through this bar test. Is it a betterment adaptation restoration? And if the answer is no, you can move to the next level and say, is it, is it material to its unit of property? By the way, we include all this data in our cost side reports. So once you learn how to do it, it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, so if it is a betterment adaptation restoration, you have to capitalize. So if all the roads lead to capitalization, it's not done yet because you can do a disposition of the assets that you're removing and you write off the remaining depreciable basis, yay. So that's pretty cool. So even if you have to capitalize, you can still, let's say we've got 20 years left on the depreciation of that asset, we can write that off. So in our reports, it gives you the data that that can be used to determine how to write those off, what the remaining, you know, what was the value? And then you just have to deduct whatever depreciation you've already taken. So that is pretty favorite. I don't know why I just love the partial disposition election. I don't know. It's pretty cool. Although I would say a lot of our clients really like the expensing. And as Bruce had mentioned, we didn't see so much interest in that part of it when bonus was 100%. But Uh, now that bonus is starting to go down, I think there's a lot. I'm getting asked to speak about this more. And I think that's why. But let's also talk about um, the bonus eligible QIP. Yes, Um, please. So qualified improvement property is any improvement to the interior portion of a building that doesn't expand the footprint of the building and it's Mm -hmm. not structural. So if you meet that definition, it's 15 year and it's bonus eligible. And I might add that this is section 1250 property. So it's base building assets. It's not personal property. So if you right. get one thing out of this section of our little overview here, it's <laughs> if you're doing a project, let's say it's $200,000 improvement and it's all interior, it's not 100% QIP because there's going to be five-year assets in that. If there's anything structural, there's going to be some 39-year assets. So you got to be really careful not to just dump everything into QIP. And Say it louder get- for the back, Terry. Say it louder <laughs> right? for the back. I it, feel like that's... It's, it's a common, common mistake, a common mistake. And I mean, I think the other thing is you don't have to do a full-blown cost study to analyze a $200,000 project. We can do a desk review of that. And Zeev's team is great at this and put a, a little letter report together. It's not that expensive. And it's certainly, it's then you're doing things correctly, which is so important. So I, I, I want to just bring that up and make sure everybody's clear that, you know, once the CARES Act was passed, we, we had the bonus, we could take it on the QIP. And since that time that that passed, we've seen clients get an additional over $500 million in deductions using qualified improvement property. So it's, it's, it's significant. And here in wow. 23, it's still 80%. So we're seeing that on a lot of projects. 
Wow. And I just want to make a, um, a point, actually. One of our most popular blogs of all time is called Handle with Care, colon, what is and what is not QIP. And anybody who is tempted to just dump it all in there, please read it. It's got a really cute picture of a cactus and a balloon. I think to represent being careful, maybe. I can't remember what I was thinking. Well, but We've had some, uh, some CPAs get into a little bit of trouble because they assumed a little too much in right. terms of what is QIP and what is not. And uh, uh, actually had some some classifications that they had made uh, reversed by the IRS. Yes, thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, you really can't be too careful. Think of the cactus and the balloon, and feel free to take a look at that blog and let um, our yeah, team don't, know if you don't have do this at home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speak to a competent professional. Oh, don't try this at home. Right. Aww, like they used to say on TV. Yes, safety but, first. Safety first, totally. Um, Terry, thank you so much, and thank you for piping up with those words of wisdom, dear. Um, I want to pivot back to Jacob. This is our number two, and if it wasn't for the IRA, it would have been our number one by a landslide. So it's kind of tied for number one. Um, I want to talk about the mandatory amortization of Section 174 expenses. I feel like there should be a hush. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I would exactly. say, hey, Helen, I think a lot of people would tell you it is number one. I, this is probably Jacob. People have been it. panicking. Yes. Yeah. It has been it has been a like there's a storm and everybody needs milk and bread and it's been that kind of a panic. I don't know. Maybe that was a bad example, but I feel like there's been a lot of a It sounded more like of- a famine actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a storm and a famine, but yeah, I mean, so section 174 amortization, just, just to give uh, any listeners the, the rule in a nutshell. So if you have section 174 research and experimentation expenses, you must amortize those now over uh, a five year period for domestic expenses or a 15 year period for foreign expenses. Um, now, this has caught a lot of people unawares because before you could just deduct all these expenses. And so nobody really cared about the difference between Section 174, Section 162 expenses, which are just general business expenses that you could deduct. Um, and also, there's been a lot of people that are claiming the R&D credit. They're kind of thinking about this backwards. The R&D credit is not triggering the 174 expenses. The 174 expenses come before the R&D credit. So a lot of confusion. Um, a lot of lateness with people kind of understanding that this was going to impact them, like people right on the tax deadline, finding out they owed a lot of extra money or CPAs oh, scrambling. No. So we saw a lot of people in crisis this past year. And the, the, probably the biggest challenge is that you have to kind of hold two truths or two possibilities in your mind at the same time. One is that this is deeply unpopular. It was kind of a budgeting gimmick with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. And so it will probably get repealed. On the other hand, it is the rule of the land right now and for the foreseeable future. So you have to plan on what is today and you might get a little land yap or, um, you know, kind of get some taxes back. But you have to understand the rules and work within them today. Um, But again, with the uncertainty with the legislation and the uncertainty about who this applies to, a lot of hand rigging about this section. So what... What do people need to be doing right now? So it is what it is. And notice 23, 2023-63 confirmed you got to, to do it. So, so what yeah, the biggest people now? 
The biggest misconception is that the R&D credit that people are claiming is triggering the 174 expenses. So you can just turn that nozzle off and you don't have a 174 oh. problem. Um, I, I, the contrary, right? If somebody who yeah. was always been claiming the R&D tax credit suddenly stops, that's a huge red flag. It is a red flag for the IRS. We've only been through one filing season, so not a lot of audits on this so far. But if this rule doesn't get repealed, you will see more audits on this specific subject. And the way to think about it, I, I was talking to so many people about this, so I actually created a chart, which I think we have and, and is available for anybody who wants it. But basically, it's how to think about this. Number one, do you have Section 174 expenses? Those are expenses related to any kind of development, new products, new processes, new software, thinking through ways to do things better on a technical level, um, You know, maybe a new technology, anything like that, you probably have Section 174 research and experimentation expenses. That is a deduction that has been around for 70 years. And while the rules on it are not entirely clear, you probably have something if you have any activities in that you know, in the technical development arena, pretty broad. Um, secondly, if you do have that, then you have a compliance issue and you need to have some amount that you are amortizing. The way to think about this is the IRS is basically treating any kind of intellectual property or technological capital as a depreciable asset as opposed to a current year deductible expense. So whereas you're paying people wages and you're just immediately expensing it, they're basically treating those wages as if they're kind of building some you know, intellectual property or some internal know-how, which does have some logic to it. Again, it's not great tax policy, but there is some logic behind the idea that your people are creating a more valuable company year over year by developing things. Um, That's a really good way of explaining it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And, and if you have that compliance issue, then you have to say, okay, well, we're going to have to have some amount of these wages and materials and overhead that we're going to be, you know, capitalizing basically instead of deducting. Um, so then if you've already made that determination, yes, we've got to do something. We have these expenses. We have these activities. Then the R&D credit is a great way to do two things. One is it provides a methodology for you to calculate those 174 expenses because uh-huh. an R&D study essentially can be a vehicle for pointing at where those qualified activities are. The second thing is that the R&D credit actually mitigates the um, the impact of the additional uh, tax liability. Now, I had one the other day where they had never claimed R&D, so they had never claimed credit. They had credits in the prior years they could claim. They did have an amortization issue, um, but because they were in a state as well that did not follow these rules, the first year effect was about a push. So they really didn't pay any additional tax. They paid a little more federal. They got a little more California back. Next year, they're going to get a $50,000 net positive and then so on. So this isn't necessarily all bad news. It's just a complicating factor if you are doing any kind of technology and uh, research or development. And I know the IRS is going to be looking closely to make sure that that costs are being treated consistently. Yeah, and the the simple reason is that if you underreport, there are companies out there where the tax bill is millions of dollars additional for this. It's not tens of thousands or it's not a push. Some people, even including these rules, it's not going to make a difference. Really dependent upon the taxpayer and their specific tax liability and situation and level of activities. And before we move on, I just want to point out there is um, a special procedure just for this year, right, that makes things easier for people that laid out. That's correct. Yeah, so 
So for 2020, for 2022 only, you don't have to file a 3115. You can just file a short statement that says, hey, you know, maybe we had R&E expenses in the past. Maybe we didn't, but this is what they are this year. And then you can utilize that instead of filing a 3115, which essentially would have a, a catch-up adjustment. Um, the thinking, though, we've we've done some research on this. The thinking is still that if you go back and amend, you can still include that statement. So the only time you'd be doing a 3115 is if you claimed these expenses as you know a, an amortizable expense in 2023 for the first time. If you go back and amend, you don't have to include any statements is the current thinking. There may be some more guidance on that. The IRS is kind of releasing guidance here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're, by the lateness of their guidance coming out, it's kind of obvious they also are thinking this is going to get repealed because if I told you you had a 300-hour research project and a paper to write, but maybe you didn't have to do it, you'd probably wait to the last minute too. Uh, gosh. So the IRS are procrastinators just like so many of us. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting right, Jacob, to see how they can untangle that. Jacob, I was going to say it'd be interesting if they do – correct it how they mm-hmm. untangle the fact that people have already filed on it that'll be exactly like, like the uh quandary the procedures now there's some thinking on this it might be that uh, everybody has to go back and amend and there's you know 50 million yeah. amended returns it could be that you just let the depreciation ride out that you've already taken because after five years you'd get it all and it could be that there's a special catch-up you know procedure to get the um. difference of what you would have gotten but uh once legislation passes if it does then those are things i'll have to think about um on the there's two other updates i just wanted to touch on briefly before we move on and one is that um there has been some helpful guidance so if you have software development um or you are in the construction or design or development industry like or architecture engineering construction there's some potentially helpful rules that might mitigate this um and also if you do govcon work like your government contractor some helpful rules came out in uh, notice 2023-63. And then the, the last thing is just, you know, if you're looking for this to get repealed, w- the House bill, there's about three bills out there right now that touch on this. There's a Senate bill that's about 80% of the way to passing. The House bill, they added some people as recently as this week, and wow. it's at 88% um, of the way to a majority. So, and that's pretty much bipartisan. Um, but you can go online and look at that. You can write your congressmen and senators and such. Unfortunately, Texas, uh, none of the House or Senate reps have signed on to one of these bills. And uh, so I've I've written both uh, both senators and, uh, you know, you can do that as well if you've uh, if you look at your state and they're not signed on yet. I'm just picturing you as like a one man, like picket line, like. Just standing by yourself with a sign, like Mr. Wood goes to Washington. Mr. There you go. <laughs> oh, I'd watch it. I'd watch a remake. Thank you, Jacob. That was very Thank interesting you. and helpful. And just if you do want more info on the software guidelines and the guidelines for for architects and designers, we do have a link to Notice twenty twenty three sixty three on our website and a blog that kind of breaks it down. Now, finally, at long last, our number one. And again, it's IRA related. Terry's going to come back and she is going to talk to us about the 45L tax credit and in particular, the new associated procedure. We've got new standards. We've got new procedures. It's wild. Terry, help us. Help us through. 
It's so wise. Okay, I'm going to, Helena, I promise to make this short and sweet because we've okay. certainly spent a lot of time on developing materials for this and trying to make sense of it. So I, my, my goal in this little short section is just to kind of give you a brief overview to the listeners brief. and hopefully connect some dots. But just to put things in perspective, the 45L tax credit has been around for a while. It kept being reissued almost on an annual basis. And it was $2,000 per unit and the credit would go to the the owner or the developer and you'd get the credit once the unit was either like a home was sold or multi-family unit was leased out mm -hmm. and you would do everything kind of at the end on the back end we would model the energy efficiency we would issue tax credits boom to bomb it was easy like that <laughs> that was apparently straightforward and, and that was then thing. Yeah, that was then, and that was that so was we were doing these on a lot of multifamily deals. But there's been a lot of changes under the IRA. Um, a couple things. One, I already mentioned that the height restriction, it used to be three stories or less. There's no more height restrictions. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, you can get up to $5,000 per door, basically, per unit credit. But let's drill down to that a little bit. So. Yeah. Well, I'm going to focus just on multifamily right now because I think a lot of the listeners are probably most interested in that, although you can do this for tracked homes and manufactured housing, and they all vary a little bit. But let's focus on the multifamily. So if you pay prevailing wages and you get the project Energy Star certified in the beginning, which is all new, you can get up to $2,500 per unit using the energy getting if you're energy star certified now if you take it to the next level and you becomes a zero energy ready home and meets those standards you can get up to five thousand dollars per unit but keep in mind you have to pay prevailing wages that bruce was talking about and there's no grandfathering in like there is on 179d so it's like we have this kind of middle ground where you've got projects that were started before 23 and they didn't know about this. So that wasn't designed mm -hmm. into the project. So they, there's really no way you can get the energy star certification after the fact. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, but it just doesn't yeah. work. So we're kind of in this no man's land right now. Um, and then if you, you take a look at the prevailing wages that you have to pay and document that, and then you get the Energy Star certification up front, then you're good. You can either get the $2,500 per unit or the 5,000. If you don't pay prevailing wages, you can get $500 for Energy Star certification or $1,000 per unit for zero homes. And I can tell you right now, Bruce is shaking his head. Uh, we were talking about for profit developers, they're going to just say, yeah, thank you so much. No, thanks. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense that you would put all this money into getting something that you're barely getting anything back. So yeah. the trick here is, is, you know, you got to plan ahead. So let's talk about what you can do now to get ready yeah. for this. Number for one, if I've got now, a... Yes. For people who are now beginning the process, what must happen? Right. So the first thing you want to do, if you've got a project on the drawing boards, is you you need to hire a consultant. Obviously, Capstan does that, where we 
or if you have an an energy star consultant that is certified that can make sure your project is certified you hire the consultant you need to make sure you hire what we call hers raters that's capital h-e-r-s rater r-a-t-e-r to, to be clear and they are responsible for ex inspecting that project throughout the project as it's being built to verify it is being built according to the energy star certification mm -hmm. requirements. There's a whole checklist that they have to follow. So you've got your energy star consultant, you have your HERS radar. So you've got this team, if you will, and then you've got a document that you've paid prevailing wages. And then the builder himself or herself has to be an energy star partner, which is a pretty quick class. It's not a big deal, just to mention that. Once you do all of that, <laughs> you should be able to take that and whatever. I would say the, the most common is probably going to be the $2,500 per unit is what we'll see. So that's currently what the process is. It's, it's very different. I mean, if you have to kind of in your mind and just blow up the old, this is new. Keep in mind on the old, if you want to amend tax returns and you place things in service, through 22, you can amend for, for three years. So you could go back and get the tax credits at $2,000 per unit if you mm -hmm. lease them up in um, 22 or before. Thank you, Terry. That was long story super short. So listeners, if you want more info, there are links on our blog. There is analysis. And of course, Terry is always available as our 45L expert. Gosh, 45L is so... It's just so wild now, so different. Okay. Um, and that's why it was our number one, because it was such a tremendous game changer. Oh, my goodness. We went from number 10 to number one. We did our top 10. Thank you, top four. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Terry Johnson, Bruce Johnson, Jacob Wood, and my own other half, Zeev Carmel. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Well, thanks for Thank you. Fantastic right. to be here, guys. Yeah. Oh, enjoy. enjoy. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. The pointy hats and the little things that you blow on, you know. What yeah. I mean? Oh, we need that. Yeah. Yes. Well. Yes. Next year. Thank you guys so much for for coming on, for making the time, and thank you, listener, for joining us today and all year long. We really enjoyed having you. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not subscribe? We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or just go to our website at capstanttax.com/podcast. I'm Helena Carmel. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cat Stand Live. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Cat Stand Live. Check out our website at catstandtax.com for more info on everything we talked about today, plus breaking news, industry blogs, and more. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>